Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Never Meet Your Idols, a podcast where your idols get real, whether you like it it or not. All right, here we go, episode seven. Episode seven already, it's gone so fast. Chugging right along. Well, this is the last episode before the U.S. election, so I'm thrilled that we have um, John Congleton on because I know he will have a lot to say about that. And um, you worked with John Congleton on one of the Blood Red Shoes records. Yeah, um, we did an EP in between um, album three and four, I think. Yeah, we did. We went to Dallas when he lived there and made an EP um, a, lo- a while ago now. But yeah, he's a super talented guy. I think he's probably, out of all the guests we've had on so far and all the people alive in the music industry as of now, um, he comes closest to who I'd consider an idol. I don't think I've ever met a producer as successful as him who was so on the same page with me. Yeah, totally. I don't know. How was working with him? I'd love to work with him someday. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, he works really fast. He um I love that. He yeah, he works super fast, which was actually a really a great learning curve for us because we tended to be a bit slower and it it kind of made us not worry too much about sort of imperfections. It was more about capturing the moment. Um I listen to records all the time on like it comes on somewhere and I'm like, I love the sound of that. That sounds amazing and I always every time I look it up, it's always John Congleton. Yeah, I, I feel like um, a lot of people in terms of majority of public don't know his name. He's not like a household name in that kind of mass yeah. public way. However, most people do know of the records that he's done, you know, and everyone from he's worked on records from obscure bands, my favorites, you know, like Swans to indie bands like Blood Red Shoes, like your band to Lana Del Rey and Angel Olsen. And he he's won a Grammy for um, a St. Vincent record. He's done so much. He's worked with huge acts and is behind a lot of people's favorite records. But because he has kind of marched to the beat of his own drums, he's kind of stayed a smaller name in terms of just name recognition. Yeah, sure. Um, which I like too. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I reckon. I think it is too. I think he he wrote, he co-wrote a lot of St. Vincent stuff early on. She only wrote with him, I think, for a long time until recently she, she branched out and worked with other people. But I remember reading that she would really only ever wanted to work with John and 
he, yeah, they kind of co-wrote the songs together. I, I mean, I get it because as somebody who's worked with huge, you know, famous, quote unquote, important producers and musicians and have struggled and never wanted to put anything out um, that I did with these people, which seems counter, I mean, which which seems to go against what everyone says in the music industry, like you want to work with the bigger names, but as an artist, um, it's actually really stifling to work with big names and feel that pressure, but also be like, this is not me, this is not the sound I want to portray or put out and not my vision. And so I get that someone like St. Vincent, who I think has a lot of um, unique, obscure elements to her music, you know, where she would exclusively work with someone like John because at least she, I would assume, would feel like that's an honest representation of her vision. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, he's just got this thing where he doesn't follow rules. He has no rules, which you shouldn't have rules in music anyway, I don't think. Um, But, you know, some producers fall into sort of right ways of doing things, and I think John is more free in how he approaches music and how he records. Also just the embracing of imperfections yeah. and, and embracing rawness and not washing and scrubbing every special element out, you know, like leaving those elements in because that's what makes it special. And I'm super excited to talk to him about all of that, but I'm also really excited to talk to him about this upcoming election yeah. too because I think it's really important and terrifying yeah. as well. Something that needs to be talked about. Yeah, <laughs> whether we like it or not. So I think that this one is going to be a loaded <laughs> episode. Maybe it should come with a trigger yeah, warning. <laughs> 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 you will be triggered. Don't worry. It won't fucking kill you. <laughs> okay, well, let's get to it. Let's bring it in. Here's your idol, John Congleton. Hello. Hi. We have matching phallic items pointing at our faces. <laughs> we all do, yeah. <laughs> How are you? Uh, I'm as good as 2020 will legally allow. I don't know. Time doesn't mean anything now. You're the last guest before the election, the U.S. election. Oh, excellent. And I'm thrilled <laughs> that it's you because you actually will speak freely and passionately about it. We have tried to talk about this with other it's guests. Frustrating. Everybody, all of these liberals and progressives um, have become so restrictive almost. Like everybody's so easily triggered, it seems, that it's like become like liberals are more conservative in a lot of ways because everyone's so afraid to have an opinion that may be offensive and then having to walk on eggshells so that you don't voice an opinion that isn't that may be too challenging for what Mm -hmm. is right now not even politically but socially Mm -hmm. you know correct or accepted sure part of it is because nobody wants to be seen as not the most progressive person uh, around, you know, I mean, that's part of it. I I feel like uh, uh, talking about how we all individually see the world and and, um, what, how we interpret things through what we've gleaned through years of our own subjective experience is what true intimacy is about. If you're constantly sort of guarded and and 
and sort of performatively saying things that you know will just kind of get a round of applause. You're not really letting anyone know who you are. Uh, and that's kind of a shame, frankly, especially when we're supposed to be artists and like kind of the people that are ahead of the curve, uh, mentally, spiritually, all those sorts of things. But, um, I mean, this is all coming from, I, I don't think anybody could ever really question my progressive tendencies or politics. I mean, I, I grew up in Texas. I'm from Texas and everyone in my family is a conservative with just a few exceptions, so um, I was the outcast in, in, all, in all, all of my sort of progressive beliefs, which I have to say that if you think being a, like identifying as a socialist now is difficult, try identifying as a socialist in the 90s. A lot of people didn't even know what that word was in America, okay? So it's a lot easier now. I'm just going to say that to the youngsters. Um, uh, so my, my beliefs... I, I feel like I've come to very uh, honestly because I had to argue them all the time <laughs> and I wasn't um, turned on to these beliefs by my surroundings. I had to sort of have my own intellectual curiosity. And frankly, a lot of that came from just punk rock and, and discovering good music and getting plugged into all kinds of new fresh ideas. And that's essentially a little bit of what we don't have quite as much now. We don't have that free exchanging of ideas. Um, uh, and this is not me saying that being politically correct, quotation marks, is a bad thing. I think that politically correct is a term that existed um, in early Soviet Russia. And um, it became something that the right wing used in the 70s, the early 70s, as an attack on liberals Um and um, stupidly, I feel the liberals sort of uh, accepted that term and, and decided to play on the right wing's game board using that term. Uh, and I think uh, we need to stop using the term. There's no word for this. We're using terms that, we, that are respectful. And how do we know what's respectful? Well, a minority group or a subjugated group will tell you what they find uh, respectful. Um, and if you're just listening, they'll tell you that. You just said about a minority group telling you. What, what I find is that it's a lot of white, hipster, mm -hmm. liberal sure. telling me what is appropriate and respectful and trying to walk on eggshells around each other when at this time, especially with everything that's been going on, this year and all of the progressive movements that are great and moving in the right direction, I still find that white liberal voices have drowned out a lot of voices that we need to be listening to. Couldn't possibly agree more. I totally agree. And I feel like the fact that you actually hear rich or privileged white people uh, speaking for minority groups um, is just another example of of the oppression of those groups and it's really tacky in my opinion um, when we essentially agree about a lot of these things we just have different ways of going about it I think uh, if you if you are a privileged white person uh, the best thing you can do is shut the fuck up and uh, create some bandwidth for um, for a, a minority or a repressed person to talk. You've had your time for several hundred years, actually more than that, 
um, yield your time. Um, and, the, and that is happening and in small ways. Um, but the sort of kickback to that, to me, is is really profane. Of, of you'll, you'll see a lot of, you see this in the arts right now. You'll see a lot of men kind of talk about, um, oh, well, it's not really my time. Uh, it's the time for minorities and for women. And it's like, dude, <laughs> it, like still, still white men, a majority are making most of the content and art that's out there. And it's like, like, for example, like, uh, you know, like on, on TV shows, what now, like in a full season of shows, there might be two women that direct an episode of a show. That's not even close to being half. And so this is that thing that is so infuriating to me uh, that when people act like we've made so much progress, it's like, no, when you've been on top the entire existence of your life, a little bit of equality is going to feel like oppression. Okay. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And this to me is exactly the problem. This is what, why Trump continues to be powerful is there's a whole pile of poor white trash. And I can say that because I, <laughs> I grew up poor white trash and I feel like I understand these people. It's a whole group of people who have been poor their whole life, don't feel like they've been treated exceptionally well by society because they haven't. Um, and they're being told that um, they need to give up more of the piece of the pie. Like that, and, and they, don't under, they don't get it because they feel like they've been put upon their whole life. But the fact of the matter is, as much as they've been put upon, their life is still easier than a black woman's is in their same position and it feels like oppression when equality starts to rise it starts to feel like oppression that's just as simple as that and and i feel like i i know that in an informed way just because i'm related to these people yeah yeah i mean and that makes sense psychologically speaking too yeah psychologically speaking it's not rooted in reality but yeah but of course you got to understand their subjective experience it's it's we all need a little more empathy frankly they need more empathy and we need more empathy of where they're coming from, from their subjective experience. I don't think that they're seeing things right, personally, but I don't think that they're n- intrinsically evil in the way that they feel. That's, that's, no, I um, think there's like that threat and anxiety because of being in a place of already struggling and not feeling represented mm-hmm. and feeling oppressed. And equality right. almost does feel like a threat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it, it makes sense in that way, you know, not saying if you, that it's real or true, right. but it's, it's, it, that if they you don't, really if, truly feel it. Right. If you don't have much and you feel like some, and you feel like people are trying to take your feet, you feel like people are trying to take what you have, which isn't true, but this is what they feel like. Or somebody like your president. Right, there you, you go. Exactly. Who's telling you, who's basically instilling that anxiety. They're very, yeah, Right. Exactly. Um, when you feel that way, you're going to get yeah. in a defense posture. You're going to feel like you have to attack what's yours, uh, uh, protect what's yours. So um, I think it's wrong minded. I don't think they're correct in their assessment of what's happening. But they also aren't talking to anybody else other than their their circle of friends. They they probably aren't getting their news from anywhere other than Reddit or Fox News. Um and and of course of course that's what they think. I mean, if they that's distilled to them as w- what the truth is, that's what they're going to think. Why not? But I mean, you escaped that. You, I mean, do you think it was through music 
Oh, it absolutely was through music. Curiosity, where you're just like, maybe I do need to question these things, even though nobody around me is doing so. Yeah, I mean, look, I've said it a million times, like to quote the Minutemen song, "Punk Rock Saved My Life." Yeah. I mean, you know, look at my teeth. I, I I grew up a poor white person, you know, like coming out to California. A lot of people out here don't get it. They sort of immediately think, "Who are these morons? How could they possibly feel that way?" And I was the guy who was uh, in four years ago. I was the guy. I was like, Mm-mm. I was like, do not count Trump out. I know, I know people that will vote for that fucking motherfucker. That <laughs> you have like, a, you have twenty percent of the population of America that is 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 politically curious and really pays attention and kind of picks a side and rah 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 that horse shit. And then you have like maybe thirty percent that vote but aren't really that engaged and they maybe just think about taxes and one issue like single issue voters and things like that and then you have 50 percent of the population roughly that does not vote at all and is politically incurious that's astounding that's what's the most terrifying thing and i'm really glad you brought that up because i was trying to explain to laura about the non-voting thing and she was just like, what? That's mad. I don't understand. Of course. And it's a whole, it's a thing, a very real thing. Mm. And but you were saying about people that were like, sort of in music and stuff that were saying that they weren't going to vote. I find that like, just because maybe I'm just completely, I don't know, coming from music, you just, it's kind of ignorant thing of me, but I sort of, sort of assume that everyone would like vote. I don't know if it's a trendy thing or what it is where mm. it's like, I, I have friends and people I just know who, you know, of our generation and are liberal and think that voting is just supporting a corrupt system and their way of kind of taking a stand against the corrupt, corrupt system right. as a whole is to not vote. Um, yeah. And of course... I have to say, like, these are all white people who are, yeah. um, and I think it, that is the epitome of white privilege, mm. to be able to be in a position where you're a white young person living in LA, you're liberal and cool and hip and whatever, and you're going to post a bunch of stuff on social media about how voting's bullshit and we need to take a stand. And I'm just like, you can maybe afford to take that or not, you know, it's a lack of a stance really, but you could afford to do that because that's white privilege. You aren't actually going to be nearly as affected or affected at all, yeah. you know, by the, by the policies that are, that you're not voting mm -hmm. for or not supporting or not voting against, et cetera, et cetera. And it's hard for me to say this. I feel like I'm almost walking on eggshells right now, but it, when there was the woman's march, the first one, I knew a lot of women who participated in the march and were very, um, you know, genuinely passionate about it and posted about it all over social media and were all about women's rights and they didn't vote. And it, it's really hard for me to reconcile those two things. I, I, don't, I don't know how to make sense of it. Do you know how to make sense of it, John? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, I hope somebody, I hope when this podcast comes out, 
uh, some people are that feel that way that you're describing of like, uh, I'm not going to vote as a protester listening because I would very much like to say just one thing to them. Um, first of all, if you're not voting because you're politically incurious or you genuinely don't give a fuck one way or another how it turns out or you really truly think that it doesn't matter either way, that's um, like like let's say you're just politi- politically agnostic, let's just say for sake of argument uh, and you don't and you don't want to vote because of that. I can't I can't actually I can't actually talk to you about that because that's fine. That's just where you're coming from. But, and this is the big but, if you claim to be a progressive, if you claim to want uh, a, a, a more liberal, I'm using that word for lack of a better word, society, um, and you're not voting, I would really like to know what you feel like you know that Angela Davis or Noam Chomsky or any of the endless progressives who have literally devoted their entire life to trying to make America a more just society, what do you know that they don't know who are telling you, you absolutely must vote for Biden? I'd like to know what, how are you, how do you know more about this than these people know about this? Okay. I think their answer is the last election and election before all these elections where we voted for change, you know, um, and it wasn't change. And to vote for Biden is still, you know, he's not liberal enough. And so why are we gonna keep supporting somebody who is kind of half-assing what we want? You know, and, and it's like okay. taking a stand. And that, I mean, that's what I'm gathering from social media and the friends okay. I've challenged. Well, I, will, I will point out exactly why that is a, a fallacy, a logical fallacy. Great. <laughs> if. If you want to, if you live in Los Angeles and you want to drive to San Francisco, do you drive to, do you drive to San Diego first? That doesn't make any sense. And I can't, that, that is so devoid of reason, their argument, that it's sort of like, I can't reason you out of something that you didn't reason yourself into. So I'm going to go ahead and just say that you're stupid and you're a politically, <laughs> you're a politically unserious person. Um, but I will also, I would, I would then, before I say that, this is what I would say. There are literally millions of people who can't vote because they went to prison because of, they got arrested for a bag of pot in the nineties or something like that. Some bullshit thing. And you know what? They would really like to vote for Biden. So why don't you just vote in their place? If you're so progressive, if you care so much about uh, about police reform, if you care so much about prison reform, vote in their stead because that like you don't have to like Biden, but you can vote in their place. That's how I would reason with those people. But ultimately, you're not voting for Biden. (laughs) I'm not voting for Biden. It's ridiculous. I'm voting against the collapse of Western civilization. I'm voting against the rise of authoritarianism. I'm voting for a coalition that somewhat closely resembles, a little bit closely resembles my uh, belief system. It's so preposterous for a white man to lecture anybody about how the system is corrupt. So I'm not particularly interested in what 
a privileged white man or really anybody coming from that place has to say about voting. You either light a candle or you curse the darkness. It's simple as that. And we are in a very dark time. And if you don't want to pick up a shovel and start digging our way out of here, I'm not really interested in talking to you. I think you're an unserious person. <laughs> Amen. For lack Amen. of a better word. <laughs> but I agree. And I think people also need to realize that voting is not just, it's not just president. You know, it's not. Of course just, not. Yeah. There's so many. And Another thing I would say, sorry, you just brought up a great point. I would also like to say to those people who are not voting, I would also like to hear who they're voting for down ballot. Uh, are they vote? Yeah. Are they? Do they know who's on their um, their state assembly? Yeah. If they're so politically engaged and they're so ahead of everyone else that they don't need to vote for president, I would like to hear about that. I have a feeling they'll have absolutely no idea. No idea. Agree. I know. Well, thank you for articulating my feelings so well. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Look, I mean, I'm sure that somebody people will listen to this podcast and think that I'm. I'm being duped by the system or I'm I'm naive, but I will tell you a quick story about this. First time I ever voted was I think 96. Yeah, 96. And in 96 and 2000, I voted for Nader and I was very self-satisfied to vote for Nader because I felt at that Bush and Gore, and I still feel this way, at that particular time when you saw those two people talk, I was like, I don't particularly see a difference between these two guys. They're both corporate chills. They're both, they, they might be the left ring and the white ring, but it's it's still a part of the same bird. And um, there was, it, it was like basically, okay, we have, uh, we have a smart one and a dumb one. That's basically all I saw between those two guys. Yeah. And I voted for Nader, and let me tell you, I felt very proud of myself for voting for Nader. And as we all know, that stole, that election was basically stolen. And um, I think it's pretty goddamn self-evident which president would have been better now. It's pretty fucking obvious that America would be in a better place if we had had Gore. It's an endless litany of things that Gore has gone on to do that obviously seem more valuable than what Bush is doing. Look at what Gore, Gore is doing now. Look at what Bush is doing now. Bush, after what, how did he spend his ex-president's years? He joined the board of Exxon. Mm -hmm. What is Gore doing? He's fighting climate change. I think we would have yeah. been better off with Gore. And I really, really want somebody to argue that against, like, in convince me. So anyways, my point is, I voted for Nader, not because I thought Nader would win, because I was, I was self-satisfied to do that. It made me feel better about myself. I would definitely like to take that vote back. Yeah, thank you. So that's my story. story. No, that's, that's, that's a, it's, that is very applicable to what's going on now, so thank you. Yeah. And uh, yes, just so we're clear, I think Biden sucks. I do. That's true. But you know what? I'm 43 years old. I've never been able to vote for my first choice. It's called being an adult. Be yeah. an adult. You don't get what you want always. It's not, a, it's not about you, okay? Everybody, it's not about you. Hipsters in LA, it's not about <laughs> you. It's about society. It's about, it's about trying to slowly turn this fucking Titanic around. I feel like this podcast has been a total downer. No, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's relevant to the time, so. Yeah. Just whatever, just, 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 just anyone who's listening, please vote. Just 
just please, just do it. Just please get over your vote. fucking self and vote, please. Okay, John, have you ever met your idol? <laughs> do you have an idol? What happened? Let us know. I, I, yeah, I thought a lot about this actually, but I, but I, I, I don't know if I've ever really ever felt like I have an idol. Um, but I've met a lot of people who were really important to me. I've been fairly lucky to every time I've met people who I, who I was like sort of in awe of, they were very gracious and kind to me. And I've gotten to work with a lot of people who, if they weren't my idols, I really, really was like dazzled by them. And I think the most incredible thing that I always learn is how just incredibly sad and tragic and we all are and how confused we are and how like hard making art still is and you never really figure it out uh, and you're always going to be just as insecure or maybe even more insecure. <laughs> um, and uh, there's some real beauty to that and that's been the best thing about getting to meet people who I really thought were kind of magical. Um, I've become, over the years, I became friendly with Brian Eno, who was definitely a hero of mine. Um, and uh, Brian um, was is incredibly gracious. He's everything that you hope Brian Eno would be. Um, and we've just become pretty, pretty good friends over the years. Um, and the first time I ever met him, he invited me to his studio, which isn't really a studio. It's kind of like just a big empty space where he hangs a bunch of his artwork, which is really cool. Um, immediately, I was nervous to meet him, but immediately, as soon as I met him, he put me at total ease. And we didn't even talk about music when we met. We we hung out for a few hours, and we and and I don't even think music ever came up once. We just kind of talked about life. Um, it was an incredibly normal meeting, but. At the course of the meeting, while we're talking, his cell phone rings, and it was David Bowie calling him. And no he and he and he reached over and silenced the phone and continued talking to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's my only story. <laughs> but but it 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 might have been the greatest moment of my life. I think that says a lot. I yeah. think that little I detail actually says a lot about who Brian yeah. Eno is. Yeah, and Brian Eno is definitely one of my biggest i mean i obsessed i've always been obsessed he's so. well i can tell you i mean he's a real person he's just a person who really likes to make art and really just follows his instincts and um that's all i've ever taken from him is just um follow your instincts trust your instincts with blind abandon and um making good art is always its own reward it might not mean that you make as much money uh, might mean that uh, you don't get to work as much. It might mean that um, you 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 get involved in things and it doesn't feel right and you have to bow out. These are all things that I've experienced through my life. I will say that there are many massive artists that I've had flirtations with or started working with and it didn't work out because I just felt like it wasn't right for me. And um, it still was the right decision for me. Looking back on it, it's like, wow, that could have been a lot of money for me, or that could have been, that could have propelled me to the next position of like being a hot shot, big dick producer or whatever. But you know what? I don't care. I'm pretty happy with where I am. Do you think you would 
feel the same if you were really struggling and not not in a more comfortable position yeah uh i don't know um but i will tell you this that everything that's ever happened to me in my life has been a surprise i've always been surprised that i've been able to make even a marginal living doing this uh when i decided that i wanted to record fucking punk rock bands i thought maybe possibly i could make enough money to to survive doing this i thought maybe that was possible and then in my mid-20s it seemed like oh this is a viable job for me and then out of nowhere people started to ask me to produce and i hadn't even thought about being a producer but i was like okay and then my career i actually started to have what would be considered a career and that happened by accident gonna ask you because I knew the paper chase and stuff, so I wasn't sure whether it was like during the band that you just started recording and you ended up being a producer, or was it something you always wanted to do and the band was like secondary? No, a lot of people think it happened the other way. I was recording before I had the band. I mean, I was always in bands. Yeah. I was always in bands, but um, I never at any point in my life ever thought that I would be able to make money making the music that I wanted to make. Yeah. That I made that realization when I was like 15 years old. <laughs> I was like nobody nobody's going to want to listen to this horse shit, you know? So, um I always thought that I would have to have a day job, right? Yeah. Um and um I mean to be frank, I always did have <laughs> a day job. Uh so no, I was I was rec- I mean I I owned a studio. I was recording people in my house and whatnot when I I started doing that when I was 17 years old in the early 90s and it was all that was always just sort of my job and like being in a band was just something I did because I'm a creative person and 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 I like to be in a band you know yeah okay that's interesting I didn't know that and like your um studio that I went to in Dallas um right this was before I was in LA right yeah yeah so when did you leave Dallas was it like recently uh five years ago okay um we have some fan questions so we should probably do that okay from David um, how do you manage to not feel overworked from working on multiple projects at once throughout the year? And what do you do when you feel overworked? That's a good question. Um, the answer is I'm always overworked, but that's how I thrive a little bit. Um, this is, oh gosh, uh, this is like, uh, what, what Dave, is it Dave or David? David. 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 What David needs to understand is the reason why I work all the time is because I'm a workaholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the only place where I feel calm um, is in the studio or making art. That's the only place I feel like myself. So in a way, it's a little bit of an addiction um, that it's um, that it's it's just where I feel good where I feel like I'm operating as a human to the best of my abilities is whenever I'm making something. Um, So if I'm at the, if I'm out doing something else in a social entanglement or cleaning my house or doing anything, I feel slightly less like myself than when I do whenever I'm making art. So I work almost every day of my life. I don't, maybe don't work long days but I'm always working on something and it's a little bit of medication for me. So, but to get to the second part of the question, what do I do when I'm overworked? Um, recognize that I'm overworked, I guess, and just try to slow it down. 
Is there is there a point where you do start to feel like maybe this isn't good for me? Just because I relate to that a lot. Like I, I think my natural state or what I'm most comfortable in doing is just constantly having something to do, like going, 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 going. I mean, Laura knows because I cannot, <laughs> you know, I cannot stop. There's always something to do and something to pursue and something to work on. And that's kind of my natural state. However, you know, especially with last week when I got sick where it's just like, right, maybe there's a time where it's healthier to take mm-hmm. some time off, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, um, I will say that it's important to realize that everything that you're doing when you're busy is kind of a distraction mm-hmm. from death. <laughs> So your life, my life is sort of like framed as a way um, like we're busy as artists because we're trying to avoid some darker truths. So I think recognizing that is important. I think like for me, a certain amount of self-care is really all I need. For example, I, I like to have mornings to myself and I like to have evenings to myself like so I can do things like this or just play with my cats or 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 go for a walk or, or something like that um so as long as i have like my mornings and my evenings i feel like i can keep a pretty good balance because i just genuinely do like to work i do i like how it frames my day structure structure makes a huge difference i love structure you get a lot more done when you have a structured period of time of work i feel like i do at least yeah for sure and it's good mentally to just have like a routine in a way like or a structure mm. fine because sometimes if you don't i don't know you feel like what's your purpose i don't know that's me but mm. no i love having i'm like militant about that so i get it yeah yeah cecil asked or maybe it's cecil would you ever tour with any of your bands again the paper chase nighty nights etc that's something you'd be interested in uh blah, blah, blah. um well i i don't really love touring that much but i would do it under the right situations i, I the chances of paper chase touring is it's very scant um i'll i'll eventually play live again someday um uh, i mean obviously nobody's playing right now but um you know, when the itch hits me again, I'll do it. Did you know that actually that's how I met Steve and my band? Because we used to go and see, I thought we, we'd see Paper Chase. You guys met at, uh, what is that place called? 93 Feet East? Yeah, or? that was What was that? Yeah. Is that what it was called? 93 Feet East. Yeah, I remember that night. It was nearly 20 years ago. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. It's a very yeah. fun fact. You're known for working with like a lot of amazing female acts. From Angel Olsen, um, St. Vincent, Sharon Van Etten, lots of women mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fans of. And um, do you have, like, is there a reason for that? Do you have more of a connection with women or, or working with women or female artists or voices? Um, or did it just happen that way? I mean, to me, it just happened that way. I, I... How come you don't want to work with a bunch of, like, white rock <laughs> instead like everyone else I think, I think that I have worked with a billion white <laughs> rocker dudes I've, I've worked with I feel like I've worked with just as many or more frankly um, but um, I think looking back on it I, I can only I can only look back on it and I would just say like what 
why was I, why did I feel like um, somebody who these women could trust a little more easier than another dude? Um, and I, one of the things I think I go back to is I was raised by three women. And yeah. I, I, my, I was raised essentially by two older sisters and my mother. And uh, I, I feel personally us usually more comfortable around women. Um, I get really, really uh, weirded out and uncomfortable around any sort of slight machismo at all. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the um, the studio actually it's gotten so much better it's gotten so much better but the studio environment when I first got into making records was such dude central bullshit um, I, I rejected that from the beginning I rejected that as a, as a male growing up I was very very sensitive uh, male I did not understand a lot of other guys. Um, I got beat up a lot by a lot of other guys. I, I just couldn't understand it. Um, so the only thing I can say is that maybe I just did not have, I did not spray that perfume in the room much when I was around women. I just think that I was just a little, a little bit more relatable in the fact that I, I wanted I was it was all about emotions it was about how we were feeling and women are better about that than but men you are. You also strike me as somebody I don't know if Laura if you've had similar experiences but as a woman in the rock industry work, who you know I've worked with a lot of prominent men who I think is that whole thing where they they kind of act like they know better. Yeah. They see like a potential in what I do but still operate, they come at me from a very superior place where it's like, you're really good at this. I want to make it into this. This is what we need sure. to do with you. You know, and you sure. don't strike me as that kind of person. Well, if I can talk about that for a second, I think that there's two different sides to that. I think that one, men still primarily have all the the big positions in music right now where they would be the person who would mentor somebody like you. It's impossible to know if a woman would be like that with you because there's not enough women in positions of those sort of mentor kind of situations. Yeah. There's just not very many. So it's, it's almost hard to know if yeah. it's a patriarch thing, but I would venture to guess that at least that's 50% of, of it, but we can't totally know because women haven't given been given those opportunities enough. But um, also for me, um, I feel that same way about, I feel that way about a, a woman or a man in terms of like what they do artistically. I always think that the way somebody approaches something, their point of view in the same sort of series of 12 notes that we all have to share when we make music, their point of view is the most important thing. Nobody can do what they do. And this is why I hate modern producers and production so fucking much because it's become a, a, it's become a thing that anyone can do where you take somebody who might have a unique point of view about music or a unique uh, take like either because they play their guitar in a weird way or or they sing in a weird sort of way and you take all these things that are wonderful and beautiful and human and then you try to fix them and that's what production has become 
yeah. fixing, fixing things that are interesting. And I reject that. Yeah. I don't do that. Yeah. That's, that is a disservice to the artist and a disservice to music in general. Again, if I can go back to these instincts that I have, what I just said right there, that's the sort of thing that has kept me not anonymous in music, but kind of a cult producer, somebody who's just sort of like, oh, you'd make a record with John and it'll be artistically nutritious, but it, but it will be too weird for the record buying public. And I reject that as well, because I think that if you look at records I've done, maybe there aren't singles on there, but they're the records that the fans seem to always like the most because I think they're the most unique to that artist. I'm I'm not trying to give a sales pitch. No, I as as someone who's listened to your records, I I agree. I think that's what makes it makes what you do really special. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much. And I just want to say further that actually a lot of times artists are the the worst enemies with this. Um, I recently did a record with a fantastic artist actually. And um, there was a lot of um, anxiety after the record was done that, oh, should the vocals be auto-tuned? <laughs> should, the, should the drums should be, should be beat detected and shit like that? And I was like, why would we do that? Anyone would do that. Your voice is fucking magnificent. There's nothing about it that needs to be changed. And the extreme irony of that to me is that I've never had anybody come into the studio, ever, 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 had anyone come into the studio and say, I really want to make a record that sounds like now. I really love how people are making, I really love records right now. No, what they reference is something like Five Years by David Bowie. And I love to point out, it's like, David Bowie's barely hitting a note there. And what you're responding to, what you're responding to is a, is a mania and anxiety, yeah. a, a beautiful uh, commitment to an emotion. Um, Auto-tune ain't going to give you that. <laughs> it's just not. Well, yeah, it's the honesty. It's that kind of visceral honesty mm -hmm. that's just come, you know, it's like it may not be quote-unquote right or in tune or maybe a mistake or imperfect, but it's, it's like the imperfections right. are, what make, are what people connect with because that's what's real and that's what's art. Yeah. I actually think that the EP that we did with you, John, like I felt like that because it was quite freeing when we did that because we had made records that maybe it sort of didn't even feel like us. Like, I can't explain it. It was just that you, when we recorded with you, it was quite fast and it was totally different to what we were used to. But I remember feeling it was feeling, it felt really free to make it, but also the sound of it, it was like that, oh, that's us. Like, and, and it wasn't like, we zillion takes of like vocals and it captured something that I think yeah I, re I still when I listen to it I'm like yeah I love like the sound of that and oh, nice I need it, to hear it <laughs> yeah like I I was really yeah, I remember just feeling really happy after we did that oh that's um, so cool I know like fans of ours like that's some of their favorite stuff and we still play the songs live so that's awesome. I, I think that like when I, I, I so believe this, I think that when an artist trusts a producer or a collaborator or they trust everyone that's involved and everybody trusts the artist, I swear to fuck anything's possible. You can make such good art when that's happening. It's when 
anxieties and, and insecurities infiltrate either internally or externally. It's when that happens that you, you come up with milk toast shit and stuff that doesn't move the needle culturally. You might put out a record that people are like, oh, cool, there's a few bops, as people like to say these days. But it's, there's, there's nothing that sticks to your ribs and, and requires you to go back. There's no, again, that word mania or mystery to it of like, wow, this is something that nobody else does except this artist. And as a producer, that's all I care about. That's so refreshing to hear, though, because I can't yeah. tell you, like, what you talk about with the anxieties, I mean, it's confining and overwhelmingly just stifling. You go into a studio with a producer who's just constantly telling you what you're not doing right, where it's just like, oh, we need to do a hundred more vocal takes because you're not hitting that note right. And and then you hit it right, but it's not with feeling. And it's like, well, what do you fucking expect? You know, I did it with feeling and it wasn't perfectly right. Maybe it can't be both, you know, what the fuck? And that creates this anxiety. And then you're questioning yourself and it totally takes away from the actual experience and expression. So I think hearing from a producer, your approach, it's very refreshing. Well, I just want to say that everything that I'm saying is something that I really believe very, very much in my heart. And I have this conversation almost daily with people, with artists. I fight this fight a lot. Um, and it's very, very tough. I, I could the laundry list of artists that I've that I've seen really take something special and kind of beat it to death uh, and take away a lot of the really special things. The amount of times that I've seen that happen is so overwhelming and so heartbreaking. And it's enough to like make me want to like fly into the sun when I think about how much it's happened. Um, but the good news is, there's enough records I do where that doesn't happen. And I gotta, I'll gotta i tell you a little secret. Those are the records that everyone yeah. loves. To be, to be completely honest with you, a lot of the people that I'd really like to work with don't even sell more than five to 10,000 copies of records. So they don't really even have budgets to make records that much because my favorite artists are the people that nobody gives a fuck about, frankly. I mean, I think I first discovered your work, I guess it was Swans, yeah. Um, I mean, I can't imagine what working with swans is like. I think it'd be pretty huh. intense. intense. But I can't imagine a producer coming in and being like, I don't know if there's a single here. That song is eight minutes and you've been playing the same thing for the whole eight minutes. Where's the bop, 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 you know? <laughs> so yeah. I, I know, um, I think it says a lot to take on projects like that where there's absolutely no radio friendly single in there. However, you who know, gives a who fuck? Gives a fuck? I mean, exactly. what, 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 what does that have to do with making important art? Yeah, Zero, nothing. nothing. Exactly. Why is there always got to be a goal? That's another thing. Is like, what's? Why is there always got to be a goal? I understand that and we we want to make a, a viable living. <laughs> I, these these goals are are made by people that are are, are have no interest in mm -hmm. art. They're interested in moving product. So, um, to me. To talk, to talk a little bit about Swans, um, the record that I'm particularly m proud of that I did with them was, was To Be Kind. Um, and the, the, the thing about that record was it was an immensely challenging record to make. There were challenges at every twist and turn because 
my I endeavored to make a record the way that Michael said he wanted to make a record, which sounded impossible. Okay, um, it sounded like a technical nightmare. He wanted to make a record all in the same room with like the loudest band that's ever existed. He wanted to do vocals live, uh, literally six feet away from a drummer. You know? And did you say yes to this, or were you like, "That's"? Of course I did. <laughs> See, that's amazing. Of course but right, I did. There shows the difference. As as a musician, I'm telling you that you taking that on instead of saying no, that's fucking impossible, which is what I've heard from every producer ever. Almost it says a lot about you. What I what, what's wrong with being challenged? Look, I mean, did does the record suffer some sort of standard metrics of good sound because I had everybody <laughs> bleeding into everyone? Yes. But yeah, who it cares? It doesn't matter. Like your favorite records probably don't yeah. sound that good. The Stooges records do not sound good. Yeah. They they do not sound good. But I vent I like what you telling me that those records aren't good. They're my favorite records. Right. So I mean, it's just fucking ridiculous to act like there's a right way to do art it's ridiculous and i reject i reject it holistically that there's a right way to yeah. do anything every time i've heard oh that's impossible even just recording live in one room it's like well look at the stones some of the best stone stuff it's just mm -hmm. one fucking room you hear each them talking right. you know they're all bleeding into each other um but mm -hmm. how did you take on i mean swans i can't imagine what what how did you do it <laughs> Well, um, it took more preparation, essentially. Like, I kind of pride myself on getting sounds quickly and just getting right into recording. Whereas with this, it was essentially like they were setting up for a live concert. Yeah. I did what, what they call gobos, which are like sort of things that partition things off. I did use quite a few of those. But we're talking about the loudest fucking band in the world. And they literally played louder in the studio than they do live. They literally played louder. Um, I separated everyone in the room as much as possible. Um, the, but there, there was bleed in everything. I mean, there, there, was, there was no no question. So essentially what I had to do was um, just, I had to spend a lot of time trying to get the best sound I could knowing that the bleed was there. The good news with that was um, Michael really, really insists on doing a lot of takes, even whenever I didn't feel like it was necessary. So I had a lot of opportunities to sit there and work on the sound before we ever got to the point to where it was like feeling like a take for him at least. But there were th certain things that were just, you know, I had to I had to make sure the drums sounded okay in the vocal mic because he was doing live vocals. And um, at the end of the day, um, there, it was a really hard record to make. It was a really hard record to mix all for those reasons. But I like the way that yeah. record sounds. Oh, my God. And too. people like the way that record sounds. So whatever. <laughs> it's cool. And like, what's the wrong? What's 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 so what's the problem with being what's challenged? The what's the problem with with committing yeah. to something like what? Don't don't be such a wimp. <laughs> Don't be such a wimp. 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 And now it's time to run.
The last portion of the show is rants and raves. I feel like we've ranted. You've ranted. Oh my God, I feel like that's all I've done. But is, do you have something you're, you'd like to rave about? Yeah. Yes. I will tell you one thing that I'm totally stoked about, and that is I love the younger generation, the Xenials. They're the best. They make me hopeful. Like, I love working with them. I love, I love how engaged they are. I love how smart they are. I love how compassionate they are. They're going to, if anyone could save the world, it's them. Super Can stoked for them. Can you clarify who Xenials are? I'm, I'm always confused by this. I know I'm a millennial. I will say, I mean, obviously... the generations down from me? Yeah, they're not millennials. They're the, the generation... The kids. The kids. kids. Let's say 22 and younger. Let's oh, wow. say that. Okay, cool. I, I think that they're fucking magnificent. And as I just said, if anyone could save the world, it's them. Every time I get the opportunity lately to work with somebody younger, they're fucking awesome. Um, I'm not optimistic about much, but I, I really am optimistic about that generation. It's pretty wow. great. That gives me some hope. I don't know if I know any Xenials personally, but... I'm lucky. I've been lucky cool to get to know, you know, to know them and also just kind of in this you know like I, I fuck man I hate social media <laughs> uh, but and I'm not on social media much anymore these days but like I don't really give a fuck what any generation X has to say I, I really don't care what millennials have to say but man when the younger generation talks they they talk a lot of sense they may not be worldly but they have like um kernels of truth in how they see things that I find very intriguing. So I hope they don't lose their spirit and I hope they keep fighting. I did a record with this young artist named Brista Maroney um, in January and he's a Xenial and his whole band is Xenial and I thought they were just fucking great kids, man. They remind me of the way I was which was like in touch like men who are in touch and, and have an uh, emotional intelligence and um, they just don't see things the way the other generations saw them. They see them in a much more progressive and enlightened way. Um, I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of faith in them. I really do. Yeah. I'm That's excited awesome. about them. That's cool. I like that we end on that note. Yeah. See, so we're ending on a positive note. There's hope for posterity. One more time. Yeah. Vote. vote. <laughs> yep. Vote. Please vote. Vote. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really Thank appreciate you. it. My pleasure. You guys are great, and this is really cool. And I mean, I'm happy to see both of you guys, even in this weird way. And I hope to see you in person soon. Yeah, yeah. I really hope so. I hope that happens. Okay, take care. Keep your chin up. Thank 2020. You. We'll get through this. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Never Meet Your Idols. Join us November 17th when we welcome Jeremiah Green from Modest Mouth. To submit questions for us or our guests, email us at nevermeetyouridols at gmail.com. Or send us a message or voice memo on Instagram at nevermeetyouridolspodcast. Until next time, I'm Corey. And I'm Laura Mary. See you, See you next, next Tuesday. Tuesday.